Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 125 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for part two of this natural wine crash course with certified sommelier Joey Fox of Old Westminster Winery. If you haven't had a chance to check out part one, I'd highly recommend you do so. We lay out some of the most important natural wine terms and taste through two amazing expressions. So most of what we discuss in the second half of our interview builds upon and extends what we cover in part one. I do have just a couple quick reminders for you before we jump into our featured cocktail segment. First, remember that our Holiday Bar Room Blitz is taking place on Friday, December 13th over at McClintock Distilling in Frederick, Maryland. So you can find a link to that Eventbrite page to purchase tickets over on the show notes page. But the breakdown is this. Six of Frederick's best bartenders will be competing to earn money for their charities of choice. I'll be the MC, and there will also be a panel of expert judges. The event's going to start with a cocktail hour where you taste through and vote on your favorite cocktails from all six bartenders. And then your votes will determine the three bartenders that go head-to-head in a chopped-style elimination series that will leave us ultimately with one definitive winner. Of course, you'll get to taste all those creations that come up along the way as well. This event's almost three quarters sold out as of when I'm recording this intro. I just spoke with Braden over at McClintock, and he's very confident that this competition is going to be sold out by December 1st, if not before. So if you want to reserve your spot, I'd recommend doing so on the sooner side. Secondly, I'd like to thank all the folks who were excited about our jungle straws. We've had quite of interest in these new stainless steel and bamboo straw sets that we launched over the past few episodes earlier this month, and I think that's a major win for your home bar and for the environment. Remember, if you enter the discount code JUNGLE at checkout, you'll receive 15% off any order from modernbarcart.com through the month of November 2019. So if somebody starts dropping hints around the table at Thanksgiving, you can take advantage of that sweet discount and hook them up for your holiday gifting needs. Thanks for bearing with me through those little announcements. And now let's do what we do best and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's seasonally appropriate featured cocktail is mulled wine. I know, I know it's not really a cocktail, but it is a large batch hot beverage that people tend to serve this time of year. And unfortunately, I think it's done poorly more often than it's done well. So instead of giving you a hard, fast recipe, I'm going to focus on tips to help you make it better, no matter which wine and mulling spices you choose. The basic idea of a mulled wine is to take wine, heat it up, and then throw in some traditional baking spices like cinnamon, clove, allspice, and star anise, to name a few. The flavors of these ingredients then infuse into the wine thanks to the heat, water, and alcohol present, all of which aid in flavor extraction. And the mixture is then served steaming hot. 
It's a pleasant prospect up front, right? Kind of like wine tea. I like wine and I like all these spices and it's cold outside, so a hot beverage is appealing. But more often than not, mulled wine is served at the wrong temperature, the ingredients are over or under infused, and there's no thought put into pairing the base wine with its accent ingredients. So here's how to avoid these common pitfalls. First, remember that temperature management is important. If you have your mulling spices in the wine on your stovetop, get the wine just up to simmering and leave everything in for about 10 minutes, stirring occasionally. Make sure you taste along the way and don't let the mixture get too hot. What you're looking to avoid is over extracting the bitter or astringent compounds out of your spices, which is really easy to do if you cook too hot or for too long. The other thing that helps avoid this fate is to strain out your mulling spices after you're done cooking. It might seem pleasant to have a nice star anise pod floating in your mulled wine, but this can also lead to bitterness and a lack of balance, especially if you mull the wine more than a half hour before serving it. If you want to have spice garnishes, just leave a bowl on the side and your guests can place them in their drinking vessels when they serve themselves. One thing you can do if you want to jazz up your mulled wine is to transfer it to a vessel where it can achieve a nice holding temperature and then slice up some lemons or oranges to float in it. It's much less likely that you're going to get bitterness from these ingredients and if the wine can handle a little citrus, in your opinion, I think some floating orange or lemon slices tend to make a really nice addition, kind of moves it in the direction of a hot sangria. To achieve that holding temperature I just mentioned, you're going to want to use a crock pot or a hot plate slash induction burner that can be set to a really nice low temperature. This means you don't have to consistently be worrying about the stove, which is a great thing to not have to worry about when you're entertaining company. The last thing I'll say about mulled wine is that you want to choose your main ingredient carefully. Some people just go for the cheapest red thing on the shelf, which is a mistake. Using something peppery and tannic like a Malbec or a really intense cab might be overkill, especially when you then throw in those mulling spices. But then again, a delicate Pinot Noir or Rosé might not fit the bill either. What I'd recommend is some of the juicier Spanish or kind of like central South France reds. Anything that's either 100% Grenache or Garnacha, or where that grape has a dominant share of the blend should be perfectly approachable. So now that you're equipped with a steaming cup of mulled wine, let's turn our attention back to this wine-driven conversation with Joey Fox of Old Westminster Winery. In this part two of our natural wine crash course, some of the topics we discuss include why the term natural in the natural wine world encounters some of the same definitions issues as many products in the spirits world. Think craft or small batch, these words that are ambiguous and somewhat relative. Which multi-thousand dollar bottle of wine has been quietly produced as a natural wine without really any public knowledge or recognition? How Joey and other natural winemakers make progress on their craft and share ideas to advance natural wine in the public view. What the term biodynamic farming means and what it holds for the future of both sustainability and flavor. How Westminster Winery is undertaking a cool new project with hybrid grapes that could revolutionize the way we think about winemaking in America, a place where controlled denominations of origin aren't held in high regard compared to elsewhere in the world. 
what to drink while eating street food in Japan with Anthony Bourdain, and much, much more. I had a great time creating this interview, and I think you'll have an even better time listening in. You can also check out some video clips of this discussion over on the show notes page and on our YouTube channel. But for now, please just sit back and enjoy this part two of my natural wine conversation with certified sommelier, Joey Fox. So how does how does your psalm training like kind of tie into uh, the natural wine space? Like uh, did, when you got your certification, was was natural wine a big thing, or is that something that you've had to kind of do some extended kind of professional development on? Yeah, very much the latter. <laughs> um, I would say there is not really any mention of natural wine through. Um, I went through the court of master sommeliers, whereas mm-hmm. you did WSET the two big accrediting programs. Right. Um, and like you mentioned, neither of them have any, uh, there's no mention of natural wine in either of them. So it's very much been a, a self, a self journey. Yeah. Um, and working here, we are striving. We're on this natural wine movement. We're living it. We're doing it in the vineyards. Um, we're doing it in the cellar. So, um, this has really opened me up to a lot and, we're working a lot of natural wine events. Um, we just did a couple events in New York um, where we, you get to meet fellow winemakers and kind of bounce ideas off each other, see what's working, what's not working. Um, right, and that's important in your space too because right, remember we were talking earlier about sulfites and how like the sulfites, the addition of those kind of widens, it, it opens up your options in, yeah. in a number of ways, right? So for, for a, a group of people who are saying, no to the sulfites, it, it, it does definitely help to be able to gather some data points on there because I imagine sometimes it can feel like you're in a vacuum, definitely. especially when you walk into like, like the Trader Joe's or whatever it is and you see all these wines for like $4 a bottle, Yeah, you know, two buck chuck or whatever, three, sure. now it's three buck chuck, I think. Um, but like, you know, it, it must, it must sometimes feel like you're in a vacuum, right? Yeah. Um, and on the whole Trader Joe's thing um, and the natural wine movement, it, I think this is something we'll see going forward that it might be a bit um, exploitative where Trader Joe's just launched their first um, natural wine, uh, which was an orange skin contact wine with, uh, other than the orange and skin contact part, there was nothing natural about it. Um, you try to get any info from them and there's it's very heavily manipulated. It, mm. It's just kind of a marketing term. So I think, um, right. Like craft, right. Is isn't that like a, in, in the same conversation as like craft or small batch in the yeah. spirits world, right? Cause small ambiguous. batch, yeah. Small batch can be relative and craft can be relative as well. Yeah. Um, it's really, there's no, like the AOC, AOP, all that stuff. There's no regulation for natural. Um, I think it's really important if you're interested in this sort of thing to meet your growers, talk to your winemakers and find out about the products um, that you're drinking. That's the only way you, um, websites are all very vague and ambiguous um, unless you're incredibly intentional. Yeah. Um, but even something that not a lot of people know, um, are you familiar with Domaine de Romani Conti? Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a, the, basically the, the big daddy of Burgundy. Yep. This is the most expensive wine in the world. Not a lot of people know that they uh, use no sulfur in their wines. It's not something they advertise. It is the most expensive bottle of wine in the world, and it is a natural wine. They farm organically. 
but no one knows that. They don't advertise it. I was able to go to Burgundy in 2015, and it was probably one of the coolest trips I've ever been on. <clears throat> you know, like you, we've kind of been shitting on uh, old world practices during yeah. this conversation. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that they're all always good, but you know, like it's, it's just two different sides of a spectrum. I think in order to appreciate natural wine, it, it helps to see these really established regions. It helps to, to like when I was in Burgundy, you know, we were driving through Volnay and the driver pointed over at Pomard and said, yeah, there was this huge microburst in Pomard across the street, lost half their grapes and Volnay was fine. And to understand like what kind of influences that has and talking about like how the, how the vineyards were completely redistributed following the French revolution so that it looks nothing like Bordeaux. Yeah. Like these are really interesting things to learn. Um, so I, I don't want it to sound like we're shitting on like old world, like established wine practices. But I think what you're saying is a perfect example of like everything that we're trying to emphasize in this podcast is like, yeah, the most expensive, probably most rev one of the most revered wines in history, natural. Yep. And we didn't even know. Nope. <laughs> Just <laughs> um, like um, on the other end of things in California, there's a winemaker named Pax. And he was just awarded 100 points, which points are meh. Uh, but he was given 100 points from um, Galoni on a Syrah um, that was absolutely zero sulfur. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's not a thing he floats into the mainstream. He's not interested in flouting that he's natural. This is just what's accepted as we think this is the best practice. Right. Yeah. So, man, I am completely like all jazzed up for natural wine. Obviously the, the two glasses in front of me have helped. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we're going to be right back to talk about a couple more things. We're going to talk about biodynamic practices and we're going to talk about hybrid grapes. Stay tuned. And we're back. So Joey, I wanted to hit some more production -y side, um, facts about, the natural wine world, um, particularly one, one word seems to really be floating around and that word is biodynamic. Yeah. Can you talk about what that means? And, um, like, I guess at the, at the most general level, but then also like how that affects the way you make the wine. Yeah. So biodynamics, this was a, um, a practice of a series of farming practices, um, created by Rudolf Steiner in the early twenties, Rudolf, created the system that um, works in the flow of the seasons, in the flow of the, uh, the moon, the positioning of the moon. And um, a lot of this stuff sounds really like voodoo. Yeah, hand wavy kind of. Yeah, but the more you kind of think about it, um, the position of the moon does affect the water level, uh, the water table in the earth and um, that really is a huge deal when it comes to farming. So um, biodynamics is it, it's something that's practiced in grape growing, um, not so much in the cellar. So we do a weekly um, biodynamic application. So he invented this in um, the 20s in uh, very tense situations in Germany and Austria. Um, so these were all code names. Um, so the his applications, um, the, so they're compost teas, basically. 
we have 500, which is the, um, it is cow poop, cow dung that you stuff into a cow horn. You bury it um, in the earth for six months in order for it to transform. Um, that cow horn has, um, it, it has so much life brimming in it. It's actually connected to the spine of the cow. Um, and it's said to truly transform this cow dung. And then you dilute it, turn it into a foliar spray that we apply in the spring in order to really bring life into the vines. Um, so we do that, I believe, once or twice a year. Reminds me of the, um, <clears throat> like the burying of fish in the garden mm -hmm. type deal. Um, like they, uh, I remember the watching the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving thing <laughs> growing up and Squanto teaches them to bury the fish and plant the corn. Um, yeah. so it's kind of, you're just using natural, uh, natural ways of, of, uh, I guess, uh, spurring fertility. Yeah, really. Um, and also to combat, um, disease pressure. We also do a weekly application here of what's, uh, it's called horsetail. Um, it is not the tails of a horse. Um, it is a plant that we, um, all, all the biodynamic preparations are kind of, there's dandelion and horsetail and chamomile. There's all these different things, but they're also transformed. So for chamomile, it's traditional in the biodynamic practice to stuff it inside of a deer bladder, <laughs> bury it in the earth and ferment it. And then it transforms and then it has these properties. Um, there are companies selling these pre-fermented and ready to go, just dilute and go. Um, but a lot of people are also making all these preparations um, themselves. Just crazy amount of work. Yeah, it sounds like it. But so basically, at, at the at, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're treating the plants with kind of like natural versions of like pest, like either pesticides or fertilizers or stuff that most people in like who are you know growing massive quantities of grapes and who are putting out these big market wines, mm -hmm. they're just using synthetic versions or, or chemically derived versions of, of this. Uh, and I mean, think about it. If somebody puts something on something you're going to consume, eventually you start consuming that too, right? Absolutely. Is that kind of the logic behind it? Yeah. Um, and I lost my train of thought. Um, biodynamics is, I, I like to think of it as organic plus, um, yeah. organic plus plus even, um, where organic farming is kind of, um, it's been practiced in Bordeaux forever. It's, uh, the classic mix of copper, sulfur, lime. Those are your three sprays. And I don't mean to get like too, too pessimistic, but, um, everyone thinks by, um, organics is organics always better. If you're spraying organic on your field every week and you're farming that for you know, a century, you're spraying copper <laughs> on the same plot of land that's seeping into your groundwater over and over and over again. Right. Um, I think in the long run, um, that's, not, that's not what's best for our planet. Um, and sure. it's, it's, I think a lot of people ask, why do I care about natural wine? Um, and I think we should care because we should care about this planet and um we want this we want it to thrive there's we, we have one earth here yeah um yeah the dc metro is trying to cash in on that they've got signs <laughs> saying more co2 means less grapes save the wine i saw that <laughs> ride <right>. metro <laughs> um yeah all right so we've got these biodynamic practices which are you know they're not necessarily it's not necessarily like squares a rectangle thing like you don't have to use biodynamics to 
to make natural wine, but it, it makes sense too, right? If you're doing all this stuff with the wine in a natural way, then it makes sense that you're also going to incorporate that into some of your, your farming practices. And Absolutely. It, it just, it just makes sense. So I, yeah. I see where that, that term kind of, um, comes in. Um, now I know you also wanted to talk about different hybrids yeah. and like kind of like the vintage variations, um, which is, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting to me because like these are, you know, it's, it's two different sides of the control situation, right? A yeah. hybrid is hybridized grape is something that we exert tremendous control on as, um, I guess, growers mm -hmm. and yet vintages are something we have like almost like zero control over. Yeah. You do your best to mitigate what nature's giving you. So, so why don't you talk about those two things and, and the control slash lack of control side? Yeah. So I think vintage variation is such a, especially here on the East coast, it's such a prominent part of natural wine. A lot of wines people say, or you know, two buck Chuck, I want to buy two buck Chuck. I don't care if it was 10 years ago or today, I want it to taste the same. And that's it. I don't, I, I don't right. care. Um, I think a huge part of natural wine is that every year brings forth its challenges, um, its own set of hurdles to jump over. And at the end of the year, it's, I think it's important to be able to taste that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this goes back to a conversation. This is also a, a subject that has been very much on my mind because we recently had an interview with Mark Viertaler over at 10th Warden Frederick. Awesome. And he's the, um, he's, he is in now in charge of their absinthe. Um, he's one of their distillers. Uh, and we talked about batching, like the batch process in spirits and how it's uh, when you're, when you're releasing small batches and making changes to your batches, it can kind of be looked down upon by people who want that type of consistency. Mm -hmm. And obviously striving for consistency is the benchmark of a good distiller. And yet if you just get hooked on consistency, there's gotta be so much that you're missing out on. There's no room for evolution. Right. So how do you approach that? Like, looking at like maybe maybe you can like walk us through like the way that you approach it here at the winery like between different vintages are there like you know we talked about um you know the, the fact that this year is an exciting vintage because you yeah. had like a really good yield yeah what is, what does that mean from a from a um a vintage perspective how how does that like productiveness of 2019 going to affect the way you treat those grapes and like your your plans for them moving forward as they ferment yeah so cleaner cleaner grapes mean less kind of effort um on our end we don't have to have four people on the sorting table cleaning out rot and mm. just doing all this meticulous work every every f piece of fruit we got this year was um, it was immaculate um and this just just it means we're really excited for the, the wine that will come from it, both in terms of yield and quality. So it seems like when you have good conditions, it seems like those biodynamic practices really pay off in like an accelerated way. Yeah. Right. Because the you, issue is that not every year can be like 2019. So, <laughs> right. Right. So this is, well, it's good though. And this is, this is kind of like the fun and, and the, the slight romance I would say of the wine world is it's, it's always a bit of a treasure hunt. Yes. Right. Because it doesn't matter how good your winemaker is. If it's rainy, if it's too wet of a year, there's just going to be, there's going to be a ceiling on what can be achieved. And the cool thing about a good vintage is that 
kind of not a ceiling on what can be achieved yeah. and that changes over time. Right. And so yeah. that's why people go out of their way to seek these great vintages. Um, so what about hybrids? Where do those kind of play into this? Yeah. So, um, talking about all the, um, farming inputs, um, all the grapes that we grow here on our vineyard are Vitis vinifera. Um, so Vitis vinifera is the European genus of the grapevine. Um, native to here, we have the Vitis lambrusca. So stuff like Concord and Norton, um, these grape varieties that are, you know, they've been growing here forever. They know the microflora around here. They're more resilient. Um, we've been lucky enough to work with um, a gentleman named Cliff who has created hundreds of hybrid grape varieties. He takes vinifera and crosses them with Native American grape varieties to kind of seek the, the best of both worlds, the flavors of these European wines or um, vines and the um, protectiveness of these um, native ones. They're hardier. Yes. They're, they're used to the temperature fluctuations. They're used to the soils. Exactly. And like I th the, and this is some, something that we've mentioned a number of times because it's probably one of my favorite topics on this podcast is phylloxera. Yeah. Right. And that's where <laughs> some of the bugs that were that that our grapes could could deal with mm -hmm. went on a boat over to Europe and got into the the rootstock of the grapes that yeah. couldn't deal with them. So when we're talking about hardiness, that's kind of one of the factors that we're referring to. It's there's, there's obviously uh, pest resistance, but there's also certain like temperature and cl like climate and soil things with that as well. Right. Yeah. And something to note with phylloxera, um, in this country, all these Vitis vinifera aren't planted on their own Vitis vinifera roots. They're planted on American rootstocks that are um, resilient to phylloxera. Right. So that would be basically the equivalent of you going to Europe and plugging your iPhone charger into a European converter. Exactly. Right. So yeah. there, so that their electricity can't hurt your phone. <laughs> um, so, so you've, you've worked with this gentleman. Um, how many of these hybrids are you actively working with right now? So right now, um, we have started a second farm, um, called the burnt hill project. We planted burnt hill in the spring, so spring of 2019. Um, we worked with Cliff and he gave us over a hundred different varieties of hybrids that he's made himself. Um, he gave us five to 10 of each. So we have one block dedicated to these vines that will be a live study. Um, we're really, really excited to play around with this. And, um, as a whole, we're also planting more hybrid varieties on Burnt Hill because we will be farming Burnt Hill 100% biodynamically. And um, a lot of these native and hybrid vines are planted on their own rootstock, which is very atypical. Wow. Well, I guess it's atypical because the vinifera aren't resilient to it, but these are American and these are the rootstocks that are normally spliced. Right, so. right. So what does that mean for the future? It seems, like, it seems like you're setting yourself up for like a grand experiment here. Yeah. A small yield experiment too, right? It seems like it's fairly small. Yeah. Each, each block will be fa fairly small. We'll have one panel. So like six, six vines of each of these varieties. And depending on the results, what we like the most, we can take cuttings. We can, um, literally snip the vines and plant them and propagate our own favorites. Um, but our, our guess is that these vines, when, 
when taken, when farmed well and taken, um, not overcropping, so dropping fruit in order to have less fruit, more concentrated, better fruit, that we can make really, really good wine out of these. Right, and that that's a, a very classic and time-honored practice in the wine world. Basically, the idea is, think about it. You got one vine, the root, you've got one set of roots. That set of roots is bringing water, nutrients, and some of the mineral content of that mm-hmm. soil up into the plant. And it's going to get distributed to as much fruit is on the, as is on the plant. Yeah. So if you take some of that fruit off, it means that the fruit that's left is going to get more of that, I guess, nutrient loving Absolutely. Uh, from the roots. And that results in a more flavorful grape. So, so what you're referring to is something that's been done across the winemaking world for ever and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, and not done in the practice of uh, talking about Pinot Grigio. Um, <laughs> they don't care about, they, they, they care about the bottom line. Um, yeah. If we can make more fruit, that means we can make more wine and we can sell it at the same price and no one cares what this tastes like. So let's just right. take as much fruit as possible. Um, but with these um, vines like Chamberson, which has kind of had a bad rep- um, reputation in the East Coast for a while, we're really excited to work with this grape and you know, not take giant yields. The, the reason people liked it here historically is the yields on it were very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wines weren't so good. <laughs> I had my first wine that I really liked. I went to I was I went to Gettysburg College just mm-hmm. up the road. There was a Gettysburg Wine and Music Festival my senior year, and I remember I went with a bunch of my buddies because, you know, we weren't in Greek life, and this was kind of like our like yeah, all right, let's just go walk around this field and drink a bunch of wine, and, you know, have a good time. Yeah, I remember the first wine. This is before my WSET. This is before any any of my real journeys into wine. I remember the one that I went home with was a, a, a like a twenty, maybe a twenty ten Chamberson Reserve hmm. from some some winery in Pennsylvania or upstate New York or something like that. Yeah. And it was yeah. So that was my the my my first like wow, what's in this bottle is very special moment. And was, I think that was like the beginning of my awakening to like wow, there's more than just bottom shelf. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really interesting. So that pro- how, how, what's the timeline on that project look like? Obviously you said you just planted it this spring. So when will you start, um, seeing yields that you can start playing around with in earnest? Yeah, I think in about two years we'll have, um, very low yields, um, but enough to kind of play around with, um, maybe pick them early and make some pet nets. Um, hot, Earlier picking means higher acidity, which mm-hmm. means they're built for sparkling wine. So that could be a really fun first project right. for those. Yeah, and I, I like what I, I love that you're doing this because I love doing experiments too. I, I use my company as an opportunity to do experiments and get in front of people to tell stories and teach things about wine, spirits, cocktails uh, that most people wouldn't otherwise get to experience. And and I I love that you guys are doing this because it seems like. You know, you're talking about this event in New York where you get to network with other natural winemakers and, and compare notes. I feel like setting yourself up for an experiment like this is making you primed to become a leader in your community, not just in the quality of the wines that you're producing, which are obviously really, really beautiful, Thank you. but also in the kind of 
experimental and um, like actual on the ground experience level to, to, to where you can actually start helping to move the needle in, this, in, in within your community by actually just having this information to share. Yeah, we really think that hybrids are the future of mid-Atlantic farming. Just so much less input. Um, and if we can, you know, prove our theory that we can make great wine out of these, um, that's the, that's the sweet spot. That's a fantastic bet to make because think about like, so, uh, my wife is from South Jersey. There's a winery in Cape May County. It's, it's a bad, it's bad soil to grow wine in. It's just not good. And they're growing like a lot of very like Sevra though. This is our cab. This is our Merlot. This it's like, all right, like there's clearly a, a very low ceiling on what can be done here with this. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it, it, I feel like that's a really good bet to make because, you know, like, all right, Virginia has a little bit of street cred in the wine world. There's a yeah. few places that are starting to develop a little bit of street cred because these people have had time to work with their vines. Um, but I feel like, why not be more intentional? Why, why not try and buck some of those market forces, which are Merlot, Cab, Pinot, Syrah, et cetera, et cetera, Malbec, Chardonnay, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, why not say like, well, okay, we're, we're just going to make it taste twice as good as what's on the shelf at, you know, sorry, Trader Joe's, you know, you're, you're coming under <laughs> fire here. I, I love your, um, I love your Thai chili almonds those are really delicious i miss the cashews those were yeah where it was really at but they discontinued those yeah so trader joe's it's not all bad sorry we're just using we you as a wine, a wine example here but like yeah like I, I i love that impulse and and it just it seems to be just another one of these examples of what can be done what what's exciting about natural wine the answer is everything yeah right in compare like when you put it next to traditional wine, I think the answer is everything. So I was, I was fully planning on coming in here and being polite and like being like, all right, you know, like maybe this natural wine's not for me, but I, I wanted to get the information out there. But the reality is like having had this completely genuine, completely dumped, like blind on my side conversation, I'm freaking jazzed. <laughs> um, I'm so excited about it. And I, I think that's my takeaway. Um, so is there anything else about natural wine, about what you're doing here that you want to make sure our listeners know before we jump into lightning round? Yeah, I think, um, like I mentioned, no, talk to your grape growers, talk to the winemakers. Um, we have a really amazing um, festival that we did the first one of um, last year called summer solstice and it's actually at the top of the hill of our brand new vineyard last year it wasn't quite planted if you come this year you will see all the baby vines in their glory um so this will be on the summer solstice the 20th um of 2020 20th uh, june 20th 2020 nice um, 6 20 2020 yeah so um we had winemakers come out a lot of really amazing it's all natural winemakers from california from washington from new york from virginia 
Um, so we're really exciting. Uh, we're really excited for the second year of that festival. Definitely, definitely. All right, so get that on your on your calendar. That's the beautiful thing about winemakers is that you guys are so in tune with the seasons. You can you know exactly what day something needs to happen, like uh, a year or more in <laughs> advance. So that's a that's a that's a bet, folks in the Mid Atlantic. Put that on your calendar. Uh, I just realized there were a couple of quick questions that I want to get to like really quickly before lightning round. Yeah, uh, it's the cost question, and then maybe even like a, a cocktail question. Cause we got to sure. ask those cause this is a cocktail podcast. Yeah. Um, but pricing, um, what can people expect to pay for a bottle of natural wine? Um, and where do your wines usually sit in that range? Yeah. So, um, I don't think there's a difference in cost. You can buy a natural wine for, uh, $12 a bottle. You can buy one for up to a hundred dollars a bottle, or if you can afford it and find it, you can buy a DRC for 13,000. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, you can find natural wine in every price point. Definitely. You don't have to splurge in order to drink well-made wine. Yeah. But it seems like you do have to research for that. You do. Yeah. Uh, any, and well, we'll get to that. We'll get to <laughs> resources uh, during the lightning round, but that's okay. So they're, they come in all at all price points, which is, which is great. Um, now, you have a cocktail program I do. here yeah. at, uh, the, in the tasting room. You want to tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe give us your thoughts on natural wine as it might apply to cocktails. Yeah. So, um, about a year ago, I started a cocktail program here in our tasting room, which was really fun. Um, you were here to, we tasted through your bitters, which we've incorporated into the program and we're really pumped about. So I would say we have, um, three drinks that I'm really, that I was really excited about. Um, we have the 1887. I guess this wouldn't apply to the natural wine because we used, we used our Solera, which is our tawny port style wine. Mm -hmm. So this was not really, uh, this was a processed wine. This is wine that ages in barrels and then is fortified right. and then sweetened. But this created a really amazing, um, flip. It was a take on the, um, classic coffee cocktail that I kind of incorporate local ingredients with. I partnered with White Tea Company, who right. you've had on here before, yep. and used their um, Yopan um, walnut cinnamon tea. That was excellent. I've done a, uh, the Cold Snap. Cold Snap was our brandy. It's so, a Cold Snap cocktail? Yeah, so yeah. it was a gingery, gingery cocktail. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, I got local ginger from uh, Baltimore County. And we use, um, so there's a product called Verjus, which maybe everyone's familiar with if they listen to this podcast, but Verjus is underripe green grape juice. This is what we use as our pH modifier here um, as we incorporate all local products. So that's like your acid, essentially. Exactly. And so... Um, what is, so we, we just did a series and we totally did not go incorporate the, um, the grape acid. What, what, what's the primary acid in a grape? Tartaric. Tartaric. Mm -hmm. Yes. With okay. mal malic and tartaric. Yes. Are the big two. Nice. Um, after malolactic conversion, um, you do find lactic acid. Right. So this is a process where, um, malolactic bacteria convert the malic acid, green Granny Smith apple tasting acid, into a creamy, milky right. acid. And that's what you find with a lot of uh, wines that were aged on the on the lees, on the on mm -hmm. the dead yeast. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, so head over to our acid series if you want to learn more about acids. But uh, <laughs> so you're using the green, the, the verjus mm -hmm. um, for the for the cold snap cocktail. So it's kind of yeah. like, almost like your buck or your mule, right? Yeah, so it was, um, 
That one was, uh, I think, a Tom Collins. So it was oh, okay. uh, neutral brandy, verjus, uh, ginger simple syrup, and I finished it off with a white canned wine. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's right straddling that line between like a Collins and a Buck, but yeah. serve it in a high ball. Yeah. What's in a Buck? Because I'm unfamiliar. It's basically a synonym for mule. So okay. if you're putting ginger beer in it, anything it. with ginger. So when I think ginger, I think a Buck or a mule. But in this case, yeah, you're right. It's definitely like kind of moving into that Collins territory as well. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then there's one more. Um, we did a local 75, our take on a um, French 75. I made a gin out of our brandy, so I took botanicals, um, nice. infused them for, I think, three days, three days to two weeks, can't remember exactly. Yeah. And I took that same ginger simple syrup, um, verjus, so, um, and then finished it with um, piquettes, and piquettes a whole nother thing. Piquette is grapes that have finished their job in the wine. Um, normally in past years, we've taken them in directly into our compost bin, mm -hmm, but right. of late, um, we take these grapes and rehydrate them and make uh, a small wine, okay. a wine between four and 6% alcohol from the remaining sugars in the skins of those grapes. Right. Right. Cause you're not like, no matter how much you press and press, there's always going to be some left, right? Yeah. And we, um, we pressed a little less hard. We didn't wring them out in order to leave a little sugar behind for this secondary product. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So those are really innovative um, ways to use what's what's here, right? Because yeah. another another thing about cocktails in Maryland is that you got to got to make what you put in your cocktails. Yeah. There's some pretty stringent rules and so it's always really interesting to hear what people in Maryland are doing to a comply with this rule that I'm not, I'm not too keen on it to, to put all the cards on the table. I sure. think it's a little bit unnecessarily restrictive, but it does spur creativity, right? So yeah. it's always fun to, to see what's going on in these tasting rooms. Um, so man, I am, I'm just overwhelmed by all this natural wine stuff, but can we jump in and just nail out a few, uh, lightning rounds? Absolutely. Favorite cocktail of all time. Favorite cocktail is, uh, the last word. You're in good company. That is also my favorite cocktail. Very nice. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Um, so what do you like about the last word? I love the herbaceousness of absinthe. I love... Green chartreuse. Yeah. Sorry. Green yeah. chartreuse. The same. They're um, in the same family. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love bright um, kind of acid forward cocktails. So that just kind of hits. It hits the boozy. It hits the acidic. Mm -hmm. It hits the herbal. It does. I love it. It is... It is a practice in complexity and intensity, I think. Yeah. And I think for people who deal with flavor a lot, you know, like if you're just going to have one of something, you want it to be something like just really like interesting, complex, robust. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Um, I think I would be gin um, in that gin is very versatile. You can make it a lot of different ways and... I guess kind of like the way I, I came up in this industry is like curiosity about each individual thing. It's really cool that each gin is made, can be totally made uniquely. Um, yeah. I've had some really amazing gins from um, California. I'm forgetting the name of the producer. St. George. St. George. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having their terroir gin and that was like. Yeah. Their stuff's killer. Yeah, they they are a groundbreaking company out in California. Definitely doing awesome stuff. And and York Rupp, the uh, the founder. I don't know if he's still the distiller or if he's just the founder. He's an Alsatian. 
Hmm. So that goes back to your Gewürztraminer cool. type thing. Thing. So he grew up making just the the um, the brandies and the the eau de vie. Very uh, awesome. The eau de vie was was big, and they were making it out of any fruit. So obviously, there was a lot of of, of grapes around. So he does great um, grape based spirits. Um, yeah, so that's that's really great. And it also reminded me, like too, like you know, think about a gin. Like it's all these different botanicals. Mm-hmm you know, kind of playing together to make a whole. And as you were telling your story at the beginning of the podcast of how you got into it, you're like, well, all right, I started at tea. Then I went to coffee. <laughs> then I went to beer. And then I got to wine. And now it's not just wine. It's natural wine. And, and not even not even wine. You, you in, in between beer and wine, you had like the organic vegetable growing. Yeah. And so like each one of those things, you know, gave you kind of like a different look. Tea is the same, the same leaf, but treated wildly differently and at different times of year then you've got coffee which is like to me like the essence of terroir yeah it's like the same beans sometimes different types of beans different fermentations oh man just like the thing the thing like how different they can be from from region to region is just mind blown it's like a great example of like putting two things that would otherwise be identical next to each other and just having a wildly different product and then with the you know with the organic farming you got really into the process of it and to me that kind of like those are those different experiences that you bring uh, to the table as somebody who's not just a sommelier, but somebody who's running a, a beverage program and, and trying to sell wine out of a tasting room. Those are like the different botanicals in gin. So it's kind of like it's a really cool um, way to kind of think of yourself through the lens of like a, all of these various different approaches to the subject. Yeah. Yeah. Cocktail with anybody past or present? Who would it be? Where would you go? What would you talk about? What would you drink? It can be a glass of wine too. Sure. Um, so I have to give credit to my fiance because when we were thinking about this, I was kind of stumped. Um, and she, it was the most obvious answer for me, which I didn't realize, but uh, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Um, which I wonder if that's been picked a lot on here. It hasn't. Shocking. Um, I would love to drink... Um, sake and cheap beer in Japan, eating street food with Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's really special. And and certainly as we've been doing more video, uh, and talking to people a little bit more off the beaten path from DC, you know, talking to, you know, actually going in and talking to people who are making things, I've definitely gone back and thought about him and his approach to things and obviously a big loss. Um, but, uh, that's been said. So, uh, yeah, celebrate Tony for, for all the great, you know, I, I think too, like, you know, if you, if you, if you think what we're doing is good food and food and beverage podcasting or food and beverage video, if you find us on YouTube, then, uh, you know, think about like the decade of good work that's been done, like on the food network and the travel channel to set this up, to like put food and beverage, like really on the front burner, yeah. pun intended, you know, for, <laughs> for actual real people who aren't in this industry, you know, um, cause those are the people who we're really talking to. And, uh, yeah, Tony was a big part of that. So his book was one of the huge influential part of my kind of upcoming when I was at the restaurant. Right. Um, Kitchen Confidential. Kitchen Confidential. If you Mm -hmm. haven't read it, please do. It's really incredible insight. Couldn't agree more. Um, So moving on to the advice driven side of things, you know, we're talking about books. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any books either on natural wine or on wine in general that you might recommend to people who are curious about? Like, for example, like, let's say let's say there's two people listening to this right now. Right. There's the bourbon drinker who's like, 
shit, this is kind of interesting. Maybe I want to get into wine. Is there a good like intro text for someone like that? And on the other hand, let's say there's somebody who's as excited as I am right now about <laughs> natural wine. Is there is there a, a text or a, a, a set of resources on natural wine in particular that, that um, you might want to recommend? Yeah, so for those that are getting interested in the wine, um, thinking back to my early days, um, I, I haven't seen the book since then, but my very first text was Wine for Dummies. It was interesting enough that I pursued that, but um, my starter book recommendation for everyone is Windows on the World by Kevin's Reilly. Um, really incredible book. You can read it um, cover to cover and then reread it cover to cover and get all new information just because there's so much to uptake. It's not dense. It is packed with amazing information. There's also the World Atlas of Wine, which is just kind of a tome and incredible, and it gets really into terroir and has beautiful maps. Um, but like the name implies, it is an encyclopedia, so right. it can be more of a reference than a, a read. Yeah, maps in the wine world are probably a, an immense pleasure that most people in the spirits world don't get to really do. All right, so maybe you can get like a map of like the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, but that's about that's about where it stops. Or Scotland might be cool. Sure, yeah, all right, okay, <laughs> fair. All right, so you can do some, some limited mapping in sure. the spirits world, but in the wine world, oh. It lives off of maps. Yeah, it Especially is if you can get like underground, that's when it even gets more interesting, when you can see the soil breakdowns oh, and the yeah. elevations. Yes. Yeah. You get, um, you know, like this is a classic left bank, right bank conversation, mm -hmm. right? Like you can get a, a map of Bordeaux and like see, it's like, oh, that's where the clay starts. Yep. This is where the gravel and the sand is. Oh man. Yeah. Why is right bank all Merlot and the left is Cabernet Sauvignon dominant? Yeah. Well, you got to look under the earth. Yeah. All right. So, sorry, tangent. But that's <laughs> so, um, so the, the world Atlas, mm -hmm. world Atlas windows on the world. Um, if you are really interested in learning about natural wine, there's a new book called natural wine for the people by Alice firing, whose definition I used when we first started this. Right. Can you remind um, us what that was? Yeah. Natural wine is wine without crap in it. <laughs> Beautiful. I think this episode, maybe we can call this episode, uh, interview without crap in it. <laughs> no, I'll probably do something else, but, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's excellent. And so she, so this is a, a recent book and mm -hmm. does it address some of the things that we talked about today in more depth? Definitely. She, it, it's concise. It is well stated. It kind of goes into all those additives that, um, you can put into conventional wine and it tells you, um, where you can buy natural wine, good wine bars, um, good producers to look out for, kind of like the classics, an overview of the pioneers of a natural wine world. Um, right. It's not too long. It is a, a nice, sweet, short read. Yeah. Um, I definitely recommend it. Cool. Uh, so assuming that there's going to be at least a handful of listeners who are going to listen to this and go out and look for a bottle of natural wine, um, what advice do you have for them either in their search for good uh, natural wine or in their um, perhaps their serving, storing, or pairing it? So know, just like you should know your farmer, know your retailer. Shop with someone whose opinions you trust. They, can, they understand your taste and your kind of thinking on farming practices. Um, there's a really great shop in D.C. called Domestique. Um, they're kind of a pioneer on the natural wine um, front in D.C. Um, there's some great bars like Dio and Little Pearl. Um, and on the Baltimore side of things, um, there's the wine source, which has, does have a nice little section on natural wine. 
and there's Fadensanen, which is the first bar, the first natural wine bar in Baltimore, which nice. you can find me at on Wednesdays. I would say um, know some importers. Um, that's really important to know. Um, an importer is kind of like a stamp of approval from someone who you trust. Um, that's how I shop a lot. Um, some of the new, newer on the scene natural wine importers, you have Zevrovine selections, you have um, Terrell selections, um, Camille Rivera selections. Um, these are kind of like, I know your taste, I know who you approve of, and I trust you based on that. Right. These are the people who are the necessary middle person between the liquor store that's going to sell you the bottle and the producer not in the United States who, who makes the wine. And one of the reasons why we need these people is because, you know, somebody thought it was a good idea to slap a massive tariff <laughs> on things like wine and scotch. No, no, uh, no, no names going to be mentioned here, but, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot to get a bottle of wine from another country into the U S it's, it's not a, not a, a, easy process. So to have a good importer, um, to know that is it's, it's one of those little, little pieces, pieces of research and one of those little data points that can actually make a big difference in how easy it is for you to find a good bottle. So that's, that's really good advice. Um, I'll also make a plug for Schneider's of Capitol Hill. Uh, Great that, store. that was my liquor, my local, uh, like neighborhood liquor store for, um, the better part of a decade. Um, the people there are really accommodating. They'll, you know, they're, they're, they're really, um, really knowledgeable and, and they will also, um, they ship, uh, to States where you can ship alcohol. Uh, so if you go to seller.com, um, you can also browse their selections and, uh, just give them a ring, talk about natural wine or, or, um, head in there. Um, that, that's, that's a, a good, a good spot in DC as well. They've got an incredible like library. You can buy some back vintage stuff. I remember buying like a a 1980 Bordeaux for 60 bucks. That was a real treat. Yeah. I go in there every year before Thanksgiving and I talk to Terry, who's the wine manager. Shout out Terry. Um, (laughs) and I say, what are some weird Rieslings you can give me? Cause I like to, my dad likes Riesling. So, uh, and like for Thanksgiving, I I find that it is a, a a pairing wine that most people in my family are good with. So we try and find some funky Rieslings and yeah, I can usually get a 10 to 30 year old Riesling for under 50 bucks. Yeah. Which is crazy. Riesling is so undervalued. It's yeah. one of my favorite grapes on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, so where can people come and actually hang out with you? Like how, how can people uh, find Old Westminster Winery? Um, where can your bottles be bought here in the Mid-Atlantic? And um, where can we find you digitally? Yeah, so um, I'm here at the tasting room every Friday. Um, and... I also work one day a week at Fadensanen. Um, it's a natural wine bar in Baltimore. Um, but I spend my whole week here and um, I'm customer facing on Friday with the tasting room. Um, you can find our wines. Um, I actually do all the distribution in Maryland. So if you're interested in any of our wines, shoot me an email, joey at oldwestminsterwinery.com. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is not a simple job. Let, let, you just kind of go, oh yeah, I, I bring all our, our stuff all around <laughs> Maryland. That is a hefty job because I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of sucks, but it is, uh, it's a that, grind. It's, it is a grind, but it's a, it's very satisfying to actually drop your stuff into the hands of somebody who is going to, to sell it and try and like bring that to people. It, yeah. It's satisfying. So if you're in Baltimore, the most comprehensive store, um, that carries, Basically, everything that we do is the wine source. Um, like I mentioned earlier, they're in Hamden. 
Yeah. Um, in DC, I, we are distributed um, through Siema, and um, so I don't have a account-by-account account basis. I know um, that Domestique does carry um, a fair bit of our SKUs, um, so definitely um, check it out there. Yeah, and DC bartenders, um, we just listed Joey's email. So if you if you need samples, if you if you want to come for a tasting, um, this is literally a real person <laughs> making a, responsible for making and transporting amazing wines that is an hour away from DC. So like this is this is a huge opportunity. Like if you or your program is moving more in the direction of a natural wine focus, it would be a huge missed opportunity to not come and at least sample some of these cool wines being put out right here uh, in, in Maryland. Yeah. Come see our farm, come taste and talk with me. As we've been sitting here recording this, there has been a blue heron, a raven and, and just a hawk. Just like it's, it, I feel like I'm at, you this, got a better view than I do. I'm at, at the zoo right now. This is a, it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful part of Maryland. And uh, especially right after the harvest this is a beautiful time to come visit. So social media, you can find the winery at Old Westminster Winery on Instagram. Um, I'm Yo Bro, it's Joe on Instagram. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening to this. You can see some of the associated video by hitting up our YouTube channel uh, or finding us on Instagram. We're, we're going to upload uh, this as an IGTV video as well. Uh, so you can walk through some of our tastings from earlier. And, of course, you can find us uh, everywhere at Modern Bar Cart. Joey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me here. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. A ton of natural wine and biodynamic farming wisdom courtesy of Joey Fox and Old Westminster Winery. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.